Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. I grew up about an hour north of here in the vicinity of Roanoke, which is in Huntington County. If you know anything about Huntington, you might know that as you travel down State Road 5 in Huntington County, you'll pass through a very small town named Magenica. Magenica is so small, some people might say, don't blink or you'll miss it as you go through it. Maybe similar to our own Kamak here in Delaware County. Uh, don't blink or you'll miss it. But some people might say that actually about Elijah's initial appearance in Israel. Don't blink or you'll miss it. As we continue our series this morning on the triumph of God in the ministry of Elijah, you might recall that last week we talked about Elijah's appearance in Israel coming kind of like a bolt of lightning in the midst of Israel's darkness, spiritual darkness because of Ahab's establishment of Baal worship in Israel and setting up this altar and house of Baal in the capital city of Samaria. And so Elijah breaks into this darkness with the light of God's truth. And like lightning, Elijah's appearance brings not only the light of God's truth, but also brings damage in the form of the announcement of a drought, that there's going to be neither dew nor rain. But no sooner does Elijah appear, and then he's gone. Directly on the heels of Elijah's entrance that we looked at last week, we read of Elijah's withdrawal. God directs Elijah to withdraw from the people to enjoy the covenant blessings alone. And we read of Elijah's withdrawal in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 2 through 6. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So you can turn there in your Bibles. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, we do have paperback Bibles underneath the seats in front of you. Uh, our text is on page 170 of those paperback Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that Bible home with you. Consider it a gift from us. We would love for you to have that. Uh, but we're looking at 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 2 through 6. Our text is on page 170 of those paperback Bibles. If you're not using a paperback Bible, I don't know what page it's on, but it's 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 2 through 6 this morning. If you are able, let's stand for the reading of God's word. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. So with Elijah's withdrawal, God is directing Elijah to withdraw from the people. and He'll enjoy these covenant blessings Alone, But as we think about Elijah's withdrawal, let's look first at the meaning of the prophet's withdrawal in verses 2 and 3. What is the meaning of the prophet's withdrawal? As soon as Elijah makes this announcement to King Ahab in verse 1 that there's going to be neither dew nor rain in Israel, we read that the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and directs him to turn eastward and to go to Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. Now, east of the Jordan then is taking Elijah outside of the promised land. He is going outside of the bounds of Israel. But the exact location of Kareth is actually disputed by scholars, but that actually plays a role or is fitting in terms of understanding what's happening here, that we don't know where Kareth is because Elijah is not supposed to be found there. He's instructed to hide yourself. But why? 
Why does Elijah go into hiding? What is the meaning of the prophet's withdrawal? Well, again, we read last week in verse 1 that Elijah makes this appearance before King Ahab and he announces covenant curse in the form of drought. And we mentioned last week how ancient kings were known, had a reputation to actually execute and put to death the bearers of bad news. And so Elijah is withdrawing and going into hiding in order to escape the clutches of an angry and idolatrous king. Or maybe to escape the clutches of his ruthless wife Jezebel, who is the queen of the Baal cult. But certainly God could protect Elijah if he remained in Israel, if the Lord wanted to do that. And so the meaning of the prophet's withdrawal is not so much to be understood as a move to protect Elijah as it is to be understood as a further expression of judgment upon Israel. This is more of a judgment upon Israel than about protecting Elijah because remember, Elijah is not just some ordinary guy. He's a prophet, and as a prophet, he is the messenger, the word-bearer of God. So as Elijah departs from Israel, the word is departing from Israel. In other words, the Israelites are going to suffer not only a drought of no rain and no dew, the people of Israel are also going to experience a drought of no word. And actually, this is a form of judgment that's announced later by a different prophet in Israel when we read about Amos sometime after uh, the appearance of Elijah. And we read these words about this similar kind of judgment in Amos chapter 8, verse 11. We read there, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. You see, the word of God brings protection. It brings guidance and direction and wisdom and strength and light and life. And that word is now departing and withdrawing from Israel as Elijah departs. So the consequences of Israel's sin are actually going to be intensified here with Elijah's withdrawal. But it's not just the word that's withdrawing. We can actually be more specific. It's the word of blessing that is withdrawing from the life of Israel. Because that word would actually be witnessed still in Israel. In the cracked ground and the drying up streams, the curse of God's covenant word would be very clear and present in Israel through this drought. But the hope of blessing is leaving. The hope of blessing is withering as Elijah leaves, just like the crops in the field are wilting. Because remember in Elijah's announcement in verse 1 of this very chapter in 1 Kings 17, that there'll be neither dew nor rain except at the word of the prophet. And now he's nowhere to be found. The word of blessing departs. But in all of this, we understand that the people are being further judged as they drift toward Baal worship in Israel, we also have to say that God is not abandoning his people here. He's disciplining the people. Israel must be made to feel the misery of both physical and spiritual drought, part of that covenant curse, so they can learn that life and blessing is found in following God and following his word and nowhere else. Life and blessing is not found in following Baal. It's only found in following God and his word. And the people must be made to feel the misery and the pain of the covenant curse and of their sinful choices. One of the things we learn here is that God is not an enabler of the destructive choices and sinful patterns in our life. He does not indulge those things in the lives of his people. He's not an enabler. 
He may and does remove eternal consequences of our sin from those who look to him in faith and those who are trusting him. But he often does not. In fact, we could probably say rarely does he ever rescue us from the temporal consequences of the poor decisions, destructive decisions, and sinful patterns in our lives. We're made to feel the pain of that. But that's God's discipline. The pain of that is more understood like a caring and loving surgeon who takes up the knife and cuts the patient in order to extract that which is threatening the life of the patient. God wounds, yes, but he wounds to heal. He distresses us to deliver us. He reprimands us in order to rescue and he stings us in order to save us. It's put very well in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, in this way. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season. Notice the parallel of what we're witnessing here with Elijah's withdrawal. He may leave for a season his own children to the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to, or to reveal to them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts. And here's the reason, that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for various other just and holy ends. I trust that many of us in this room can testify to experiences in our own life where we've been made to feel the misery and pain of destructive choices that we've been making in order to turn us from those sins that we might depend upon and cling more closely to the Lord. And Israel needed to understand that life depends on God and his word. There's nothing that Israel is going to be able to do to make it rain. And all of the prayers that they're offering up to Baal are going to prove futile. They depend upon God and his word. And now that word is departing as Elijah departs. But notice that that word does not depart from Israel until after Ahab has already departed from the word of God by turning to Baal worship. And only after Hiel has departed from the word by building Jericho. It's only after these things. And so there's a warning here for us. And the warning is don't depart from the word in your life. Don't depart from the word. Read it daily. Study it. Learn it. Sit under it that you might know it, that you might grow in it, that you might obey it. We're told in the scriptures that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We read that in Deuteronomy, and Jesus quotes that verse to the devil when he's being tempted in the wilderness. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God? If so, then cling to that word. Israel fails to cling to that word, and the hope of life and blessing departs with Elijah's withdrawal. But that word is sustained as it departs. It is sustained, and it's sustained not only as an expression of God's care for Elijah, it is sustained for the sake of Israel, that that word of blessing and life might return to Israel in due time. That word is sustained. And so look, let's look at how God sustains his prophet by looking at the means of the prophet's provision in verse 4. The means of the prophet's provision. Elijah is going to enjoy both physical and spiritual provision while Israel continues to suffer under the drought and is deprived of these things. As the Lord directs Elijah to go to Kareth, 
And the Lord states to Elijah in verse four, you shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So while others are going to bed with dry mouths and empty bellies, Elijah is going to be eating and drinking. In fact, we discover that he's going to be having bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. He's going to have two meals a day and he's going to be drinking from the brook. And this should serve also to remind us that while people depend upon God's word for life and blessing, the word does not depend upon people. It depends upon God, his power, and his faithfulness. People depend upon the word. The word does not depend upon people. But note how humble the means are by which God provides for Elijah here. There's a humility in these means. He provides for Elijah through a brook, not a river. And he feeds him with ravens, not angels. He could have supplied a river, could have supplied angels, but he doesn't. It lacks the kind of the spectacular and the pomp that we often expect to see when God is working powerfully in a way. It lacks that, the spectacular and the pomp. And not only do we expect to see it sometimes, we have to admit that we prefer to see it. We want the spectacular. We want the pomp so we can have evidence of God's glorious and mighty working. But all this is probably going to transpire without anybody even noticing what God is doing to provide for his prophet. But isn't this often the way God acts? Isn't this often what God does? I mean, think about when God himself stepped into the world in the second person of the Trinity. In the incarnation, Jesus steps into the world, and when he's born... That birth announcement is made not to kings and to princes, but to shepherds watching their flocks by night. And then Jesus grows up in the obscurity of Nazareth, not in the glory of Athens or Rome. And then when Jesus rises from the dead, the most glorious event of all of human history, it happens in the early morning hours when it's dark outside and no one sees it. The most glorious event of human history is not witnessed directly by anyone. And then when Jesus does reveal himself in his glorified, resurrected body, he doesn't appear to Pilate. He doesn't appear to the Jews who had put him to death. He appears to women and to Galilean fishermen. There is often a kind of modesty that God adopts in displaying his glory. And as brilliant and glorious and, and majestic as that still is, because of that modesty, it can go unnoticed by us. It's so subtle and modest that that glory can even go unnoticed. When God is building a vast forest around us because that growth of the trees can be so imperceptible to us, we miss what God is doing. There is so much life in the depths of our oceans that we don't know about because we can't penetrate those depths to see that life. Not to mention the mysterious and wonderful knitting together of a unique human being in the womb that is beyond our vision to behold. We don't see it. And so part of this means that we, it, we have to be cautious when we expect to see God's presence and his work in the spectacular, in the production, and the extraordinary. Not that God never works in those things, but the danger is thinking God only works in those things, or even primarily works in those things. The spectacular, the production, the extraordinary, the Bible conference, the summer camp, the short-term missions trip. Again, these things are important. These can be definitive, shaping moments in people's lives. 
The danger in these things is not thinking God is at work in these things because he is. The danger is in thinking he's not at work and he's not present in the daily, the repetitive, and the ordinary. Because that's when God does his work of character formation and spiritual growth. It's happening in the daily, the repetitive, and the ordinary. It's happening in your commitment to spend time daily in the word and daily in prayer. That's shaping your character. That's growing you spiritually. It's found in the commitment to regularly attend worship and to gather with God's people corporately to feed and to be nourished by the word and the sacraments. It's the decision to do these kinds of small things. The time you invest in building relationships. Relationships that are characterized by encouragement and accountability. These things don't happen in an instant. It takes time to cultivate these things. It's found in the routine, small ways we serve others around us. It can go unnoticed. And it's even found, our spiritual growth and character formation, in things like when you decide to go to bed every night so that you can get up the next morning and have energy and strength and focus to fulfill the daily callings that God has placed upon your life. That's where spiritual growth, that's where character formation is happening. We can say it like this. God's work in our lives consists less of events that happen every so often. Again, it's not that it never happens there, but it happens less in events that happen every so often and more in a process happening every day in the midst of what often seems quite ordinary. God's work in us is happening one godly decision that we make at a time. One word of truth spoken at a time. One act of love and patience and kindness extended to another person at a time. One decision to remain silent and listen to someone else at a time. One hug of encouragement at a time. One bold, courageous stand against injustice and racism at a time. One willingness to enter into a hard conversation for the sake of a relationship at a time. It's when and where God is at work on a daily basis. Discipleship, sanctification, growth and holiness, these things are not events. They're processes. And it might seem in the midst of that process that nothing glorious is happening. But what is happening is that God is increasingly conforming you to the image of your Savior by His Spirit in those small, daily, repetitive, ordinary moments in your life. You can think about it like this. A small, steady drip of water might seem insignificant and feeble, but that small, steady drip of water can hollow out rock, <laughs> right? A small, steady drip of water. And that is often how God is working in our lives. But that can hollow out rock. God uses that powerfully. God is doing amazing things in the midst of what seems very ordinary, and it's easy for us to miss it. Case in point, did you notice how amazingly God provides for Elijah? in these verses. It's true, he doesn't supply Elijah with a river. He supplies Elijah with a brook. But he supplies him with a brook in the midst of a drought where there's no dew and no rain. And it's true, he doesn't feed him with angels. He feeds him with ravens. But did you know that ravens are scavengers? And scavengers do not by nature or by instinct share their food and yet they're feeding Elijah with bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. 
There's something amazing that's happening here. Now, we're not told exactly how God feeds Elijah with the ravens. We don't know exactly how that's happening. But we learn that the one who is able to shut up the skies and withhold the rain is also able to open the mouths of ravens to supply the needs of his servant. Now, of course, if it needs to be said, we shouldn't conclude here that God will provide in this way when we find ourselves in a time of drought or famine or scarcity. We shouldn't conclude from these verses that God is going to send ravens to us in the midst of the scarcity of a next global pandemic if that happens in our lifetime. Remember that there are other faithful Israelites living at the time of Elijah who are not directed to the brook at Kareth. And so those faithful Israelites are hungering and thirsting along with the rest of Israel. And remember that Elijah is not just some ordinary guy. He's the prophet of God. He's the word bearer and he is supplied as the word bearer. God sustains his word in sustaining Elijah. And he does that, again, not only as an expression of his care for Elijah, but he does it for the sake of Israel, that that word of blessing might return to Israel in due season. And so the means of the prophet's provision on this occasion are not meant to serve as a pattern for God's people at all times. But there is something here that does apply to us at all times, and that's when God directs us to the source of his provision we are to submit and to obey in going to the source of that provision that he's promised. We are to respond in submission and obedience like Elijah does. And so let's look at the matter of the prophet's obedience in verses 5 and 6. We read in verse 5 that Elijah does exactly what the Lord directs him to do in his word. It says, So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth that is east of the Jordan. Now notice something here, that apparently when Elijah appeared before Ahab to give this announcement of covenant curse, he did so without having any directions about what he was supposed to do afterwards. And so Elijah, much like us, had to live and act by faith in God without having the future disclosed to him. Because that's what living by faith looks like. Living by faith requires us taking steps and acting without having everything figured out, without God telling us everything that's going to happen in the future and what's going to result from this. Living by faith is taking steps in faith and trusting God with all those results because we don't know what the future holds. But when God's instructions come to us like they came to Elijah, he is to respond in obedience, even if it would appear contrary to, to human wisdom to do so. Because some might look at the situation and say, wouldn't it be better if Elijah had begun some kind of evangelistic campaign to win back the culture for Yahweh, the Lord, against the rising tide of Baal worship, wouldn't it have been better to start that kind of evangelistic outreach campaign rather than to withdraw and go into hiding? It seems like it might be better, but apparently not, because that's not what God directs him to do. When God directs him to go to Kareth, he responds in a spirit of total submission and complete obedience. We actually see the spirit of submission and obedience in the life of the great American theologian Jonathan Edwards, who wrote in a diary entry on January 23rd, 1723, something of this kind of total submission and complete obedience. January 23rd, 1723 diary entry written by a 20-year-old Jonathan Edwards. So take note of that, young people. He wrote this when he was 20, Take note of that for those of us who are older than that as well. This is what he wrote. I have been before God 
and, in, and have given myself and all that I am and have to God, so that I am not in any respect my own. I can claim no right in myself, no right in this understanding, this will, these affections that are in me. Neither have I any right to this body or any of its members, no right to this tongue, these hands nor feet, no right to these senses, these eyes, these ears, this smell or taste. Now henceforth, I am not to act in any respect as my own. This is the kind of submission and obedience that we see in the life of Elijah. It's the kind of submission and total obedience that should be adopted by us who follow the Lord as our king. Total, complete submission and obedience and a resolve to do so. Is this characteristic in your life right now? But there's more than the matter of the prophet's obedience to consider here in verses 5 and 6. We also read of the matter of God's faithfulness in verse 6. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook. God did exactly what he said he was going to do in providing for Elijah <laughs> because he's faithful. He's powerful to do what he said and he's faithful to do what he said. But let's not miss this. Elijah had to go to Kareth to enjoy the promised blessings. Elijah didn't set the terms for how, when, and where God was going to bless him. In order to enjoy these provisions, Elijah had to go in obedience to Kareth. He doesn't set the terms of when, how, and where God blesses. And neither do you, and neither do I. If we want to enjoy the provisions God has promised, we must respond in obedience to go where God has called us to go. Now, let's be clear. God has not promised to provide for us with ravens in the time of drought. We've already talked about that. God hasn't promised us that he would rescue us from all the temporal consequences of bad decisions that we, that we make and sinful ways in which we're living. He hasn't promised to do that. He hasn't promised to give us an easy life where there's no loss and no sickness and no pain and no hardship. God has not promised his people those things. But what he has promised to provide for his people is mercy and grace and his presence and his strength and his forgiveness. He has promised to rescue us from all the eternal consequences that our sins deserve. And he's promised to confer upon us eternal life. But we can only enjoy those provisions he's promised by repenting of our sins and looking to Jesus by faith. There's no other way. We must go where God has directed us to receive those promises. And so if you're here this morning and you've never done that, you've never repented from your sins and trusted in Jesus as your Savior, you can do that today. But know that he's not promising you an easy life. He's not promising you to erase all the consequences of bad decisions that you've made up to this point or bad decisions that you'll make in the future. He hasn't promised those things. He hasn't promised to protect you from sickness or hardship. He's promised you mercy and grace and forgiveness and eternal life. But only by repenting of your sins, turning from them, renouncing them, and trusting in Jesus for salvation. But God is faithful and powerful to do as he says he will do. And if you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus for salvation, you will be saved and you will receive eternal life. Elijah had to go to Kareth for the blessings promised in 1 Kings 17. And we have to go to Christ Jesus for the promised blessings in the gospel. There's no other way. Elijah obeys and he goes to Kareth. And in his obedience, 
and in the provision that he enjoys, notice Elijah now serves as a picture of what Israel was supposed to be, living in faithfulness to God and his word and enjoying God's presence and the provision of his blessing as a result. That's how Israel is supposed to be. And the God who once provided for his people Israel with water from a rock and manna from heaven as they wandered in the wilderness, this God now provides for his servant Elijah with a brook at Kareth and ravens from the sky. But because Israel is now walking in disobedience and drifting toward Baal worship under King Ahab, Elijah now enjoys these covenant blessings alone. But even though Elijah is alone, he's not ultimately the one who is isolated in this passage. It's Israel who's being isolated from the word of blessing. The misery of covenant curse in the form of drought is going to be prolonged now because the word withdraws. And Israel will experience the pain of that covenant curse and they'll be made to taste the reality of that covenant curse for their sin. But they will not be made to drink the fullness of the cup of that curse. They'll taste it, but they will, don't, they will not drink the fullness of the cup of that curse. Because spoiler alert, sorry, Elijah is going to return and rain will fall once again upon Israel. But not because they deserve it. Not because they've earned it. It's because of God's grace. It's only by God's grace that rain will return. Blessing will return. Elijah, the word bearer, will return. And let's make no mistake about it. We deserve covenant curse for our sins every bit as much as Israel does in 1 Kings chapter 17. And we may taste the consequences of our sin, but those who are looking in faith to Christ Jesus will not drink the fullness of that cup of curse, but not because we don't deserve it. It's not because we've somehow earned God's favor. Grace flows to us and grace flows to Israel because there's a greater Elijah who lives. His name is Jesus. He is the greater word bearer. He is the word incarnate himself. And as the word incarnate, Jesus undergoes his own kind of withdrawal on the cross. He undergoes his own isolation. But we can contrast Elijah with the greater Elijah in what this isolation accomplishes. Think about it this way. Elijah's isolation was a judgment upon the people. Jesus' isolation on the cross was to bear the judgment on behalf of the people. Elijah's isolation separated the people from God. Jesus' isolation on the cross reconciled people to God. Because on the cross, Jesus was separated and isolated from the Father. He was forsaken, abandoned, excommunicated, put out of communion in his relationship with the Father because he was bearing the curse that his people deserved. And he was isolated in that and forsaken of the Father. But because he was forsaken, we were reconciled. As a result of that, Elijah's isolation deprived the people of God's blessing, but Jesus' isolation on the cross secured God's blessings for his people. He secures for us the blessings of eternal life. And ultimately what we have to await because of Jesus' isolation on the cross as the greater Elijah is that we have the promise of a banquet prepared for us in the age to come. We're not going to be fed by ravens, bread and meat. We're going to feast at a banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb, prepared for us because of what Jesus has done. And we will not drink from a brook, but we will drink from a river, but not an ordinary river. We will drink from the water of life that will never, ever run dry, all because of what God has provided for us in the greater Elijah, Jesus Christ. We are forgiven because he was forsaken. We are accepted because he was condemned. 
out of his amazing love. So we're going to sing of this in just a second, but let's pray first. Our great God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for the light that it brings to us. Help us not to depart from your word. Help us cling to it, to feed upon it, because it reveals to us your ultimate provision for us, the provision that we have in a greater Elijah, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is for us bread from heaven and who is for us the water of life. We look to him, we praise him, we pray these things in his name. Amen.